Today's podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and many more, and you can make money from your podcasts. It's everything you need to do to make a podcast in one place. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Inspiring Growth, where we inspire growth with leaders and their organizations. I'm Mark P. Fisher with my co-host, Alyssa Wilkinson, and we're just grateful that you dropped by today. Uh, Today's show, Inspiring Growth, is brought to you by eHome Counseling. You can connect with a certified counselor anywhere, anytime. So if you feel stuck or struggling, you can connect with a licensed and compassionate therapist by video to get help and hope. And your first video session is only $25. Go to ehomecounseling.com. What I felt like was a really encouraging conversation between you, Mark, and best-selling author Ron Hall. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, you shared a quote with me that I just wanted to let our listeners know. And it's from Bob Goff. If you guys haven't heard from him, he just released a brand new book, Everybody Always, which is great. You want to check that out. I love Bob. I know. He's so fun and so genuine. Yeah. Um, So his quote that he shared was this, embrace uncertainty. Some of the most beautiful chapters in our lives won't have a title until much later. So Mark, why don't you tell me, I know that you've shared this quote with me a couple of different times. Why does it mean so much to you specifically for our first episode? Well, first of all, I, I have over the course of my life been encouraged to be certain. Mm. To be certain about what I believe or where I'm going or a vision I'm casting. And I've found that that actually creates in me this level of anxiety and stress. Not trust or faith, Mm. but the exact opposite. And so when I first heard Bob say this, I thought, oh, yes. Yes. I just, I felt my whole spirit kind of relax because... In my own journey, some of the most beautiful chapters in my life didn't have a title. Didn't have a title until much, much later. And for example, Ron Hall, um, a friend of mine had given me his New York Times bestselling book, Same Kind of Different as Me, eight or nine years ago. Yeah, I love that book. It came out. I was in high school when that book came out. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you like it? Um, because he's such a good storyteller and I read it and I just felt very connected to him and his family and Denver and, uh, felt very drawn in by the way that he told that story. Yeah. I, for Lori and I, we were reading it night times for quite a while and something happened, Alyssa, that got inside me and started shifting things about how I see myself, how I see others, see people who are struggling Mm-hmm. Uh, moving me from sort of ju- real being judgmental to being more uh, compassionate or empathetic. So his story was very inspiring to me. But what happened was, and, and I think that was the birth of inspiring growth, what happened was over the course of several years after reading that book, I, I had a ton of health issues. Mm-hmm. And it left me in a place where I had to resign as president of the nonprofit organization I was leading, Sandy Cove Ministries, 
And I was filled with uncertainty. I was mm. depressed and discouraged. And it was a long, long road, which I hope to unpack over the course of several yeah. episodes of Inspiring Growth Podcast. But I got a phone call from a friend. I was staring at a wall one day, completely in despair, not sure what to do next. Because I was out of a job. My health was terrible. And I got this phone call. And it was like, hey, Fish. You know, it's John. And John starts talking to me. He goes, did you ever read that book I gave you a few years ago? Same kind of different as me. And I was like, yeah. He goes, I know you've had some health issues. Mm-hmm. And had you thought about this book at all no. since you read it? Okay, No, I had not. And so when John called me and asked me that question, I was like, dude, what, what's going on? And he's like, well, you're not going to believe this, but I'm now the president of the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. And since you're trying to figure out what you're doing next and you're get on this path to healing, yeah. would I be at all interested or motivated because of that story to help 300 homeless shelters and rescue missions across the country raise awareness and money for those experiencing homelessness? Yeah. So what was your initial response? Did you say yes right away? I was like, uh, if I can do it from my couch. Like I don't have to get up at all. Yeah, because I was literally, uh, I was relearning how to function Mm -hmm. and that relationship began and uh really inspiring growth as a company was born then and during that time i discovered that the book same kind of different as me was being produced by paramount to be released as a major motion picture Mm. so i looked up ron hall called him up introduced myself told him what i was doing he was really friendly and encouraging. He's like, anything you can help would be great. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my friendship with Ron Hall, which uh, goes on to today. I'm actually serving as his senior advisor for the same kind of Different As Me Foundation, which Mm -hmm. is the 911 for rescue missions across the country. That's awesome. So your friendship with Ron has definitely developed over... How many years now have you known him? Uh, several years. I, I, I'd have to think about it. I don't know how many years. All right. We'll say Maybe three four. four. Yeah. Three, we'll say three to five. Yeah. Three to five years. <laughs> and so you've known him for the past few years. And you actually just had the chance to go down. Uh, you and your wife went to spend some time with him and his wife, Beth. And you guys were able to have a conversation about his story and just kind of some of the uncertainties that he has been through and how he found, you know, that those chapter titles didn't happen until a lot later. So we are really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. So without further ado, here's Ron's conversation with Mark. Well, Ron, thanks for sitting down with me. This is Mark Fisher with Inspiring Growth. We're actually at Ron and Beth Hall's home in Dallas, Texas. And uh, my wife, Lori, and I are hanging out. We're working on the same kind of Different As Me Foundation, which is, why don't you talk about the foundation? What, what is that all about? Well, our foundation was inspired by our book and our story, Same Kind of Different As Me. And it came about as a result of me being, I guess, the unofficial uh, czar for homelessness in America because I guess after our book, the success of our book and then our film, I get calls all the time of people that have emergency needs as it relates to the homeless. So we decided to start a foundation that could be the 911 call and fulfillment center for emergency needs, uh, especially in the areas where homelessness is underfunded, uh, which is most of the world, but there are many missions that have uh, 
a huge base of support, but then there are plenty of smaller missions that have virtually no support. So we would like to lift those people up and bless them when they have emergency needs. Yeah, and I know with Denver's story, you know, you guys met in Fort Worth, but the mission there probably would not have given Denver a car like you gave him a car. Well, of course not. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's way too much liability in that. Well, and there's not enough money to go around to give, uh, you know, how many thousands of people on the streets a car. So. Just to get to work. But so, well, as you know, Ron and I, um, as Ron knows, uh, Inspiring Growth is really designed to inspire growth with leaders in their organizations. But the podcast is a way to share stories of struggle that have led to growth. And Ron, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about the initial struggle that was sort of the seed of, of, of a ton of growth in your life, but it didn't just, it didn't happen with a Hollywood movie. <laughs> no, it happened long before that. Uh, I'd say in the, in the mid-80s, I was uh, riding on top of the world. I was a very successful uh, art dealer, ran a, an international art business where I was selling millions and millions of dollars worth of very famous paintings to museums and large private foundations and collectors. Uh, we, my wife and I were both living a purpose-driven life, but my purpose in life was chasing after the almighty dollar, and her purpose in life was chasing after the almighty God. And our lives took very different paths. And in fact, I went down a very slippery slope and decided on infidelity as the answer to our marital problems. And of course, you know, that worked out for you. Well, <laughs> you know, actually, it worked out magnificent mm. because my wife and her ability to connect with our Savior and for her and the fact, the passion that she had for God and, and what the Christianity is all about. You know, it's about forgiveness and it's about mercy. And she showed me the most incredible Christ like forgiveness for that sin. And, and for that sin and for her forgiveness, I promised that I would do anything that she asked me the rest of our lives together. Anything. I said, anything you Does ask. Does she know you had made that promise? Yes. Yeah, I okay. told her that. And no, so we rocked along for about another 10 years uh, in a very beautiful marriage. We rebuilt our lives together. Our marriage was a picture perfect marriage of any, uh, is the, I thought it was the most perfect marriage that God ever ordained. Our friends were just like, what is going on with you guys? I've never seen a couple so happy, so committed. Everything, we were just so in love. And, uh, and you know, we, we just, we, we began to uh, share common interests. And, and of course, our spiritual. This, this beautiful picture was after the infidelity. After the infidelity, after the forgiveness that she showed me. Mm -hmm. She was able to throw my sin as far as the East is from the West, never to bring it up again, never to bring it up again. And uh, wow. that's why I said, I will do anything you ask me. Have you ever met people who hear that part of your story and go, I can't do that, or I I've wish heard a lot I'd of people, done that. But you know, I have also heard from other women who said, I did that and it saved my marriage. Mm -hmm. So I know that was an important part of our story. I know people focus on our story as helping the homeless, but there would have been no help for the homeless and no story apart from the forgiveness that she had shown me for my infidelity. So talk about how her forgiveness caused growth for you. 
when, once she became a believer, then she took the ball and ran with it. And I just was then building a business and she was raising our children and she became the spiritual leader in our family. I abdicated that job in the pursuit of money. And so uh, as of a few years later, you know, that wasn't working out so well in the marriage, though I had amassed a what I said, a very comfortable amount of money that we could have easily lived the rest of our lives on with never having to work another day. So anyway, as a, uh, as a result of, uh, of that, and I had a, a lot of, uh, I, I, uh, I would say I was very arrogant about that time. I was very proud, very prideful person of what I had been able to accomplish. Uh, the fact that I had grown up in almost not an inner city, but a very, very poor section of the city. I used to tell people, and I grew up so poor, I couldn't even pay attention. <laughs> And, um, and as a fellow ADD guy, I can understand that. Well, and you know, I, I was a, a, a self-made success. I started uh, with a job as a paper boy at eight years old, and I was the top paper boy in the city. Then I, I had several jobs that, uh, that I worked three jobs in high school, and I was able to buy my own car when I was 14 years old and pay the insurance, and, and I put myself through college. I did all the kinds of things that most kids don't have a chance to do today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, those were different times, and my parents were not able to afford to do that. Well, it was interesting. I remember you had invited me into dinner with uh, Greg Kinnear, who played right. you in the sure. same kind of Different As Me movie. And I was talking to him, and he said, you know, the first time I met Ron, I told him it was a pleasure to meet you. And your response to him was something like, well, that's the catfish calling the bullfrog big mouth or what? <laughs> <laughs> Something like so, or, or it's like, you didn't know me. You obviously don't know me. Oh, well, yes, that's true. I might have said, yes, you obviously don't know the whole story. So talk about the forgiveness and where that path of forgiveness led you as relates to same kind of different as me. Well, the path of forgiveness led me into the greatest marriage, the happiest marriage that I uh, could imagine. And, um, but, you know, I, uh, I was still not really fulfilled in life. I was fulfilled in a career. Uh, we had, uh, we bought a ranch to uh, enjoy being in the country together. And that was something that was very important to our marriage to have a, a mutually shared interest. And you called that ranch? Rocky Top. And it was at Rocky Top where we really fell in madly in love again. And we had a very common interest and made friends there uh, in our ranching community. But um, it was just uh, a few years after we bought Rocky Top. We'd been maybe had it 10 years when uh, one night my wife had a dream. We were actually building a new home, which was my dream home. I had always wanted a big contemporary home to house our, our art collection. I was very proud of our art collection that I had built uh, over 25, 30 years as an art dealer. And in this dream home, she began to dream. And the first night she dreamed there would be a homeless shelter built in Fort Worth, Texas, where our new dream home was. Um, there would be a homeless shelter unlike any homeless shelter in America. It would be beautiful. It would be like a hotel where the clients there would be served uh, new fresh foods uh, cooked by a chef. And they would be sitting on new furniture, they, not the, the hand-me-downs, the things that you 
that people put out on the curb and wait for the Salvation Army to pick them up. Mm-hmm. But they would be dressed in new clothes and not the hand-me-downs that are thrown into the bins for the for the uh, missions to pick them up. This is all in, in her dream. This is all in her dream. And when yes. she told you this, what, what went through your mind? Well, you know, she didn't really tell me this uh-huh. dream until after the second dream. So uh, the next night, she had another dream. And in this dream, she, had, uh, she dreamed of a, of a homeless man. She said he was a poor man who was wise, like a verse in Ecclesiastes, uh, where they said there was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise, and by his wisdom, the city was changed. But in her dream, she said, the city and our lives will be changed if we can find this man in her dream. So she asked me to go uh, with her into the inner city of Fort Worth to look for the man of her dream. So that was actually the first thing that she had ever asked me to do outside just being a good husband and being faithful. And, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, even though it was not something I wanted to do, I knew she wasn't crazy. So I said, okay, I'll accompany with you. So we began driving around the inner city looking for this man in her dream and we didn't see him the first day. So we stopped and volunteered at a homeless mission and, and told the people we would begin serving there uh, regularly. And, and part of the plan was in hopes of uh, finding mm-hmm. the man of her dream. But the mission was all run down and nasty. And, uh, and, and I did not want to be in this place. It smelled bad and all that. And I was telling her that and she said, Oh, but this is, I dreamed of another more beautiful mission that when our dream really comes true, uh, when we find the man of our dream and all of these things, there will be a new mission built and it will be unlike any mission in America. It will mm-hmm. have even yellow flowers like our spring pastures at Rocky Top. And so she described to me this mission uh, as when she was describing the man of her dream. So we had been there uh, serving a couple of weeks and I was getting over my, I guess, uh, fear of being there. Your phobia of dirt? My phobia of, I was, uh, I, I was a, a germophobe, you might say, and, and I uh, was very afraid of all the diseases that I might catch being in this place. And in fact, I, I asked the chef on the first day that I was there, they called him Chef Jim, he was just another homeless man, but he wore one of these big toques like a French chef wears. So, <clears throat> and I said, uh, can you tell me what, what all the infectious diseases that may be floating around this place I need to know about? And uh, he said, oh, absolutely. He said, let me tell you, we infect them all with love. Mm. So uh, that was kind of a smart aleck comment. But anyway, by that, <laughs> he won me into his, uh, I guess, friendship. And so, uh, but we had been there a couple of weeks when we were serving an evening meal and all of a sudden, this uh, giant African-American man with no shirt and no shoes and just some raggedy old uh, unzipped britches burst into the uh, dining room and starts turning over tables and, uh, and screaming, I'm going to kill whoever done it. I'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes. And uh, I, it was frightening to me because all of a sudden there was mass pandemonium in the dining hall. He started beating up people and throwing people down on the ground and and uh, he was screaming obscenities, and, and I was really... Where were you? I, I was behind the serving line, uh, getting ready to serve the evening meal. Mm. And so I decided that the, I could feel the fight moving my way, and so I decided to take a little hiding place down behind the, the serving line. 
And, uh, and I had my head kind of stuck in there like an ostrich sticking his head in a, in a hole. And, and all of a sudden I got to wonder, well, I wonder what happened to Debbie? So uh, she was standing <laughs> next to me, but I had totally uh, was more concerned about myself. But all of a sudden I had a moment of clarity. Well, maybe I should check on her. So I pulled my head out and I looked up and she was all excited. And she was jumping up and down like a cheerleader on the sideline of a football game. And she was saying, that's him. That's him. And I said, that's who? And she said, that's the man I had the dream about. And I said, which one? And she said, the one that's threatening to kill everybody. And then she looked down at me because I was still on my knees. Hmm. And she said, and Ron, I believe I heard from God that you have to be his friend and find out if my dream is real. And I said, but Debbie, I was not at that meeting you had with God. And if I'm going to be friends with someone who wants to kill everybody, well, I think I should go talk to God myself. So I asked one of the uh, homeless men who was serving next to us on the line. I said, who is that crazy man? He said, well, a lot of people call him the lion of the jungle because he rules the streets with fear and intimidation, but no one really knows his name. But a lot of people just call him suicide. Suicide. Suicide, because messing with him is the equivalent of committing suicide. Hmm. He said, he's dangerous. He's crazy. He'll hurt you. You just need to keep away from him. And I said, well, thank you very much for that advice. So, And that was the beginning of the story that's now a New York Times bestseller, same kind of different as me. It was on the bestseller list for over three years. And then it you made had, number one on the no, New York Times bestselling list. And it's actually revisited since the yeah. movie came yeah. out in October. It's back up on the New York yeah. Times bestselling list. But that was really a relationship that I guess uh, for me, when I've gone and I've served, I've often had a subconscious sense of, you know, I'm going to go help somebody. I'm going to help them because I've got more than they have, or I'm better than them, or, you know, they made stupid mistakes and I haven't. And so I'm going to hand them some food or something like that. That's not your story. That's not your story with Denver. Something happened to you more than happened to Denver. Talk about that. Well, uh, Denver, in, in Debbie's dream, Denver was a poor man who was wise, but I did not really understand his wisdom uh, in the beginning because I just saw him as a poor, angry, crazy man, <laughs> and uh, was, there was no yes, wisdom was coming there because he would run from me. And I pursued him for five months at Debbie's insistence. You remember, she had, uh, I had promised her I would do anything that she asked me, and every day she was asking me, please just take a drive through the inner city, see if you can get him in the car to find out if my dream is real. And so I continued to do what I had promised that I would do to get him in my car and have a conversation to see if he really was a wise man who would change our city. And it took me five months to get him in the car. And uh, we went to breakfast that morning. At the end of breakfast, he asked me, he said, what is it you want from me? He said, you and your wife driving me crazy. He said, man, I've had no peace in my life since your skinny little wife showed up on the streets. He said, can't you tell that woman to leave me alone and get control of your woman? And I said, uh, no, I can't get control of my woman. But I said, oh, we really, I just want to be your friend. And he looked at me with this incredulous look, and he said, you want to be my friend? And I said, that's it, straight up, man, I just want to be your friend. He said, man, I'm going to think about that. And I thought to myself, hey, buddy, you just looked a gift horse in the mouth. You do not know 
who you were talking to. I said, I'm a millionaire. I can do anything for you. You are the man of my wife's dream, I think. And if she wants you to have new clothes, you got it. Car, I can do it. House, apartment, anything you want, I can do for you because I've got everything and you have nothing. So you should be thankful that I want to be your friend and not just go thinking about it. So uh, that's how arrogant I was. I thought he had nothing to offer me in a friendship. And if he behaved himself, I would be his benefactor mm. and, uh, and show him what it was like to be rich for a day and make, he, make him feel badly uh, about himself, that he hadn't made the good choices in life that I had made to become successful. But I had no idea what homelessness and poverty and, and lack of education, all those things. I had no idea of those things because I had everything. You used a word right there, and I want you to—I want you to pick up that story in the next chapter. But you used a word that I—I I struggle with. You were going to do it for him, mm-hmm. and I—I I often think about how we try to do things for folks. And I was with a, a group of inner city uh, folks working in the inner city, uh, millennials. And I said, you know, I really want to be in there and, and do stuff for you guys. And they looked at me and they said, well, we don't need you to do stuff for us. We don't even need you to do stuff to us. Yeah. What we really long for is that you would do stuff with us. Yeah. And that feels like what happened next in your story as you pick up that well, thread uh, with Denver. Yes, yes. After I asked him to be my friend, he said he would think about it. Uh, a week passed and I went. I drove through the inner city to go pick him up and take him to get some coffee. And just, we were beginning a friendship by then. And, uh, and I was trying to see him on a regular basis. So I pulled up and he was taking trash out of a dumpster and feeding the wild animals and birds on the streets. And I said, would you like to go get some coffee? And he said, yeah, I guess so. So he gets in the car and we go to Starbucks and we're sitting on the sidewalk at Starbucks on a nice uh, afternoon. He said, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? And he said, well, you asked me if I'd be your friend. And I said, oh, yes, I did. So what do you think about that? And he said, well, there's something I heard about white folks, and it really bothers me, and it's got to do with fishing. And I said, well, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I said, I'm a rancher and cowboy and an art dealer, and I know a little bit about those things, but I don't even own a rod and reel or a tackle box, so I'm not sure I can answer your question. And he looked at me, and he said, oh, I bet you can. And I said, well, then go, go ahead and ask. He said, okay. He said, I heard when white folks go fishing, they do this thing they call catch and release. And I said, Denver, of course they do. I started laughing. I said, it's a sport. You don't get it. He said, no, sir, I don't get that at all. He said, because back on the plantation where I grew up in Louisiana, we'd go out in the morning, we'd dig us a can full of worms, we'd cut us a cane pole, we'd sit on the riverbank all day long. When we finally got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught and we'd take it back to the plantation and share it with all the folk. He said, so it occurred to me, if you're just a white man fishing for a friend, and you're going to catch and release, I ain't got no desire to be your friend. And my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream of a poor man who was wise, because at that moment, what he spoke to me about friendship was the wisest thing I'd ever heard on friendship. And I only had a second to make up my mind. Do I accept this man's offer of friendship and not catch and release or just be honest with him and say, I'm only doing this for Debbie. Mm. And, uh, but if I ever heard from God in my life, it was at that moment 
and and I knew I had to take a chance and be his friend. I said, okay, Denver, I'll be your friend and I will not catch and release. And then he said, then you got a friend for life. And I said, you do too. And uh, so he became my professor. Professor. And, and he and I became his very eager student. And it was, uh, it was a life-changing friendship for me. You know, what I thought I was giving to him, I was not. I was not giving anything. I didn't really change his life. He began changing mine. And one of the, the first days that we became friends and I'm sitting with him on the curb uh, outside, he lived by this dumpster across the street from the homeless mission, what they call the hobo jungle. And we're sitting there and, and uh, he asked me, he said, uh, are you one of them Christians? And I said, yes, I am. I said, why do you think I'm down here trying to help? He said, but that ain't my question. He said, my question is, I want to know why all you Christians worship one homeless man on Sunday, then turn your back on the very first one you see on Monday. How could that affect you? I mean, by the way, you channeled Denver beautifully. <laughs> uh, he, he passed away several years ago, but yeah, six I feel years like I'm ago, in the next room yeah. with Denver and I, I've never even met him. How did that affect you when you when you started hearing that wisdom and it was almost like holding a mirror up. Well, it became one of the most exciting things in my life. I, I couldn't wait to be with him Mm. almost on a daily basis. I I began thinking so much less about art. And I guess in the old college terms, uh, you know, I moved from art to humanity Mm. and And his wisdom was so extraordinary that I couldn't wait to be with him almost on a daily basis. You know, I asked him one day, I said, what's it really like to be homeless? And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And I said, well, I mean, I've been, I've never been homeless. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. He said, let me tell you something, Mr. Ron. And he looked at me and pointed and he said, whether we's rich and then he pointed him back at himself and he said, or whether we poor or something in between. He said, this earth ain't no final resting place. He said, so in a way, we all homeless, just working our way home. Mm. So that's why I titled our new book that I wrote about Denver called Working Our Way Home. I mean, at some level, Ron, your experience with Denver is so life-changing it's a gift that you're able to share it with the world. I'm grateful that you invited me into to being a part of that. And now your new book is coming. Mm-hmm. It's the 10 years after Same Kind of Different as Me. Talk a little bit about that book, uh, Working Our Way Home. Well, I guess I need to tell a little bit more of the other story first, because five months into our friendship, Denver told me, he said, something bad getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. And I remember uh, driving by the restaurant. He told you that. Yeah. And you said, that's where Denver told me that's that. Where, yeah. I haven't been back since. And uh, I said, that's, that's where um, he told me something bad was getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. He said, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless in Fort Worth, she has become precious to God. He said, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside. Something mm-hmm. bad getting ready to happen. Mm-hmm. And three days later, she was diagnosed with cancer. And some doctors thought she might only live six months. Some thought maybe a year. But the good news is she lived 19 months after the diagnosis. But during that 19 months, the man that I thought had nothing to offer me in a friendship 
stayed up all night long on his knees in prayer for me and this Debbie and for our family. And he would knock on our door the next morning and deliver us a fresh, relevant message that he had gleaned from hours on his knees at night by the dumpster. And he would give it to us as it was, as it was a revelation from God. And he was never wrong. Hmm. And, um, and I used to marvel thinking, how is it here a wealthy man, well-connected in the Christian world, and yet God chose the poorest, most dangerous, illiterate, homeless man on the streets of Fort Worth, Texas, to become the one who encouraged us the most during the darkest days of our lives. But if you think about it, isn't that just like God? Mm -hmm. So upside down. So on the last day of her life, he came to tell us, Mr. Ron, God's taking her home tonight. And he said, I want a few minutes with Miss Debbie. So he went in and he kneeled beside her bed and he said, Miss Debbie, I know the only reason you've been hanging on this long because you don't know who's going to take care of God's people. That was her name for the homeless. Mm -hmm. But he said, I don't know. You don't know who's going to take care of God's people when you leave to go when you pass. And he said, but I was talking to God last night and God told me, he said, Denver, you go tell Miss Debbie to lay down her torch and you pick it up and you carry it for the rest of your life. Mm. He said, so that's what I'm going to do, Miss Debbie, so you can go on to heaven. He kneeled beside her bed and he kissed Debbie on the forehead and said, I'll see you on the other side, Miss Debbie. And he came out of the room and he told me, he said, don't worry, Mr. Ron, Ain't nothing going to end that God don't let something new begin. He said, something's going to good going to happen. And I went in to see Debbie and her final words to me were, don't give up on Denver. God is going to bless your friendship in a way you can never imagine. Mm. And so three days later, she she went on to be to heaven that night. And three days later, Denver showed up to preach her service quite spontaneously. And he went to the dais in the pulpit and began speaking. He spoke for almost 30 minutes, and it was one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard in my life. And when he got through, he got a standing ovation from a church with more than a 1,000 people in attendance. And by noon the next day, more than $500,000 came in to begin building the new mission of her dreams. Within a year, five million. Within three years, 11 million. And now, 18 years later, we've raised nearly $47 million and completed the finest homeless mission in all of America uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, where the chapel is named, the Deborah Hall Memorial Chapel. Mm. But anyway, after she died and keeping my promise to Debbie, Denver moved in with me. And he and I lived together then for the next 10 and a half years. And together, uh, it was quite challenging taking <laughs> a man who had been living on the streets in a dumpster for 25 years to move into multi-million dollar home and learn how to live and coexist. And so this new book, Working Our Way Home, is how we learned to love and live together and how together we traveled across America raising nearly a hundred million dollars for the homeless in over, I don't know, over 800 appearances, Mm -hmm. uh, telling our story and raising money and how he was honored at the White House and in many state houses by governors. Tell a story about when you and Denver went to the White House with with, uh, the Bush family. Yes, well, uh, it's interesting how our our book became uh, 
the favorite book of Barbara Bush, who by then was the uh, the ex uh, the late the ex I guess first lady, uh, and uh, but at that time it was George W. Bush and Laura Bush were in the White House, but they all had read our book and and decided that they wanted us to come speak on behalf of Barbara Bush's foundation in Washington D.C. at the Symphony Center. Uh, that Denver called the Sympathy Center. He didn't know what a symphony was, and he just thought they were saying Sympathy Center. And uh, so we, uh, they honored us with a private luncheon in the White House uh, in the president and Laura Bush's living quarters on the third floor. And all the Bush family members were there and a couple of other authors that were speaking that night. And uh, as we were about to finish the lunch, uh, Denver started banging on his glass with his fork, ding, 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 ding. And he was sitting between Laura Bush and Barbara Bush. And I was down at the other end by the old President Bush. And uh, he said, uh, and Laura Bush said, I think Denver has something he'd like to say to us. And he said, yes, ma'am, I sure do. And she said, well, what would you like to say, Denver? He, was, he said, well, first of all, I'd like to tell y'all that y'all got a real nice house here. I ain't never been in no house like this. And y'all got a real, I bet y'all are proud of your house. And Laura Bush said, well, Denver, it's not our house. It's your house too. And he looked at her like a cow looking at a new gate. And he said, hey, my house. I ain't never had no house. And, uh, and she said, oh, well, you know what I mean, Denver. It belongs to all the citizens and taxpayers of America. And he said, I ain't never paid no taxes either. Oh, <laughs> so, but anyway, everybody was laughing. But he said, that ain't what I wanted to say. And she said, well, tell us what you want to say. And he said, well, what I would really like to do is be able to go around this table and thank each and every one of y'all by name. He said, but I'm going to tell y'all the truth. Uh, he said, I can't remember none of y'all's names because all white folks look alike to me. Oh, dear. Oh, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I would bad. die. But they thought it was the funniest thing they ever had heard. And I guess about an hour later when we were finally leaving the White House, and as we pulled away from the White House in the limousine that they had us driven around in, and we're pulling away from the White House. And Denver starts laughing hysterically. And I was still kind of upset and angry with him for having embarrassed me in front of the whole Bush family. And I said, well, what's so dang funny, Denver? You just embarrassed the tar out of me in front of the whole Bush family. Now, what is so funny? He said, well, think about it, Mr. Ron. He said, I done gone from living in the bushes to eating with the bushes. He said, God bless America. This is a great country. I said, oh, it sure is. That is so good. That is yeah. so good. Well, Ron, thank you. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for telling your story and keeping to tell your story. Um, I want you just to just give a few Denverisms for us before we close up. Oh, well, listen. We have, we have, by the way, we, with every, if you'll go and get a copy of Working Our Way Home, you'll get a, a bookmark with Denverisms in it. But like one of my favorites is bless the hell out of people. Well, you know, I was, um, I was struggling with my relationship with my father. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, my father was uh, not an easy guy to get along with. And he was a kind of an old racist and uh, he didn't really like Denver. So Denver told me one day, uh, he said, Mr. Ron, uh, you just got to bless the hell out of your daddy. And he said, your daddy got a lot of hell in him. And he said, that's the only way you change people is you just got to bless the hell out of them. 
And uh, so I began blessing the hell out of him, and Denver began blessing the hell out of him, and uh, he and Denver became best friends, and uh, and my father became a believer as a result of the, the love and blessing oh. the hell out of him, and so he ended up in heaven. He has so many of these great ones. Well, again, if you're interested in finding out more about Ron's new book, Working Our Way Home, go to workingourwayhome.com, and you can get a personalized autographed copy, plus Help the foundation, the same kind foundation, which is the 911 for homeless shelters across America. Uh, take a look at what you can do there and make a difference in your life, in your community's life, and enjoy the next chapter of Same Kind of Different as Me. Ron Hall, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mark. Man, I just love that so much. What a great way to kick off our very first episode. I mean, he is just so honest and raw about his experiences. And I think that, you know, that quality is something that we can all learn from for sure. Yeah. So true, Alyssa. I I just appreciate you all listening into my conversation with Ron Hall. I love this guy. I love his heart. Mm -hmm. I love how he admits to his failures, his arrogance, uh, and how that moved him to compassion, uh, to keeping promises to turning his story, which had no chapter titles, into a, <laughs> so true. Into a yeah. story called Same Kind of Different as Me. And then his mm-hmm. book that just came out following uh, the 10 years between Debbie's death and Denver's death is called Working Our Way Home, which is the incredible true story of, of that homeless ex-con and that grieving millionaire, Ron Hall, as they were thrown together to save each other. And I'm grateful for from my relationship, and I'm glad you could listen in to a little bit. And if you haven't watched the movie or read the book, please jump in and do that. Or if you'd like to learn more about the Same Kind of Different as Me Foundation, go to samekindfoundation.org. Well, you've been listening to Mark P. Fisher and Alyssa Wilkinson on Inspiring Growth, where we inspire growth with leaders and their organization. If you'd like to learn more about us and what we do, just go to inspiringgrowth.biz. That's inspiringgrowth.biz. I also want to thank our sponsor today, eHome Counseling. You know, it's been observed, and I can attest to this, that oftentimes difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. If you need someone to help you make sense of a difficult road that you're in right now, please set an appointment with an eHome counselor. Your first video session is only $25. Go to eHomeCounseling.com. I'm Mark P. Fisher, the Chief Encourager with Inspiring Growth. Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to our very first episode of Inspiring Growth. We would love for you uh, to just take a moment before you exit out of whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on and make sure that you subscribe, tell your friends. We would love for them to hear this conversation as well. And hopefully you were are leaving us encouraged and inspired. Have a great day.